0: Hey, babe. Yes. Are you into magic? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, yes, I'm into magic.
0: That's good because you are Abracadam. Ooh. <laughs> you like that one? <laughs> that's that's all in do. the delivery. Love Uncovered, the podcast that pulls back the sheets to look at love from different angles. I'm Robin Wilson, and together with my partner, Phil, we'll examine different themes around love. How are you doing today, babe?
1: I'm doing very well. How are you?
0: I'm okay. It's a Sunday?
1: It's a sunny Sunday.
0: A sunny Sunday, and you've been cooking in the kitchen all day, and I'm so excited for dinner. Yeah. So in this week's episode, we're going to talk about soulmates and the idea of finding the one. Which, incidentally, was the name of my previous podcast, where I chatted with couples about their love story.
1: I know, I remember.
0: Well, in preparation for our topic today, I looked up some mythology on soulmates. And just as a side note, when I googled soulmates, my autocorrect changed it to soupmates, which seems kind of fitting for us. I mean,
1: both good. That's both true. good.
0: Yeah. So one thing that came up that I found really interesting that I wanted to share with you is uh, something that Plato who was a great philosopher, a story that he told about the idea of soulmates. And he said that originally humans were made of essentially two people mashed together. They had four arms, four legs, two sets of genitals, one head with two faces. I've met
1: someone like that before. I mean, it was a circus, but still (laughs) might've been fake. Or
0: maybe one of our ancestors. Maybe. According to Plato. Yeah. So he said that the gods, because gods are petty and spiteful, I said that, not Plato. Oh. um, Decided to punish humans by splitting them in half, thereby making two people out of that one, which is what we have come to be known as today. Okay. And then eternally, these people go around searching for their other half, their soulmate. And once they find them, they're united and they have never known greater joy.
1: All right. And then their, their bits all fit back together seamlessly.
0: Exactly. What do you think about that?
1: Boy, that's, um, that's something the, the the visualization there is, is something else. <laughs> um, you know, I'm uh, I just, I don't think I've ever really been sold on the idea that there's one person for everyone and only one person and no one else can, can do simply because, I mean, how, how difficult would it be to find that one person? It's, it's. It's really convenient that that person always seems to be living in the town that you're living in. like
0: <laughs> Your really? near vicinity.
1: Like there's billions and <laughs> billions and billions of people out there and I'm going to find one person out of that. I, so
0: you're saying that Plato was full of shit?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think his, uh, his logic is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and what so do you think about that?
0: I think it's a lovely story. You know, yeah, as far as mythology goes, yeah, it's lovely and sort of aspirational to sort of, you know, find that one person that completes you, you know, as they say in Jerry Maguire. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really lovely sentiment, but it's also really sad because like you said, if there's only one person, you know, if you're looking for that one singular other half, well, what if that person lives on the other side of the world and you never meet them? Or what if you meet that person and then all of a sudden they're no longer in your lives anymore for various reasons?
1: Yeah. uh, The idea that there's only one is just, uh, that's so difficult for me to get my head wrapped around. I mean, I think it's, um, like a lot of things, I think the romantic story, um, you know, is, is fun and interesting, but realistically, um, you know, I, I just, I don't, I don't buy it. I think, um, maybe that story makes more sense if you don't take it literally, you just take the romantic ideology of it, and, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe you are broken into a hundred pieces and there's 50 other people out there for you.
0: Well, dang, now you're starting to talk about polygamy.
1: Yeah. Am I? Damn. <laughs> How did we get here? Aren't Aren't you? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you just find little pieces of yourself that match up with a part of you a lot of different places and... And maybe there's no such thing as um, ever finding every piece that completely completes you.
0: You know, and that's that's a fair thought because when you're thinking of sort of that that other part to fill fill your needs, it's not necessarily always about sort of to be crass filling your hole, right? Is uh-huh. that, that a little too crass?
1: Um, it's <laughs> it's very graphic. <laughs> yeah. so... that hole inside of you. <laughs>
0: exactly yes a metaphorical whole. yes right like we can there can be sexual partners you can meet your best friend who sort of nurtures a different part of you an intellectual someone that you can sit and talk about say philosophy with for hours there are different people in our lives that we count on for different things and they don't all have to be sexual partners
1: yeah, I think I think not every aspect of your entire being has to be fulfilled by one specific person. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't see anything wrong with that. You know, when you're with somebody that fulfills a hell of a lot of them, and especially ones that are really important to you, then that's amazing. That's that's fantastic. But it's not to say that you also can't be your own person and still find find other people and other other things that kind of fill things in your life that you need as well. It doesn't always have to be exclusively coming from the other
0: person right and talking sort of moving it into a sort of a sex inclusive nature does that muddy things up or do you think that having sex with multiple partners is something that people can do as well
1: i'm in the can i guess i mean it's i don't i don't know how i would get my head around that emotionally and rationalize that i don't know it's one of these things as a guy, I think probably every guy goes, oh yeah, that's awesome. That'd be <laughs> like the ultimate. I can, I can go out and sleep with whoever I want and it's all good. And you just come home to the person that you actually click with. Yeah, I don't see that being the case. It just sounds way too simplistic to me. Like I, I just don't understand how people can go and have that type of intimate experience with some other person and then come home and have the same level of intimacy with your spouse or whoever it is, you know, your partner.
0: Right. So intimacy, again, you're talking sexual intimacy, because there can be a high level of intimacy without any sex.
1: Yeah, I think it, they're not mutually exclusive, but they go together quite often. So I think that brings in, in a heightened level of intimacy, I think, that, that to me should be reserved for that one person that you share your whole life with. Hmm.
0: That's really interesting. And it actually leads me really well into a chat that I had this week. Uh, I was lucky enough to talk with an archaeologist who also teaches cultural anthropology at McEwen. I'm Dr. Katie Bittner. I was born and raised in Edmonton, Y-E-G
2: for life. And I'm an archaeologist by training, but I teach several courses on gender and archaeology and biological anthropology in the Department of
0: Anthropology, Economics and Political Sciences at McEwen. Katie had a lot of knowledge to drop on our what our cultural ideas of monogamy and polygamy and even something like polyandry are within our society. So let's take a listen to that. So tell me, Katie, what is anthropology? Anthropology is the greatest discipline that ever
2: existed. Um, <laughs> and no, I do not have a bias. That's sarcasm. Um, it's simply just the study of humans. Um, we study um, the history of humankind, both from the archaeological record and the paleontological record. So, we look at fossils. Uh, we study humans by comparing ourselves with non humans. So, of course, non human primates, uh, but also all the other non human others that are there. Cultural anthropologists will focus on uh, the cultural variation that, so all of our different behaviors, our practices, all the things, things that we learn, our ways of knowing. Linguistic anthropologists look at language and its use. Um, And biological anthropologists also look at modern human variations. So things like genetic variation, population um, studies, stuff like that. If it has people, (laughs) you'll find us. (laughs) So basically you study everything
0: about everything. Everything about everything. Nice. Yeah. And so what can we learn about the idea of soulmates from anthropology? Oh, that's a good question. Many
2: anthropologists argue kin is the building block of society. So all of our other structures and organizations are built upon that. Well, what is one of the fundamental aspects of kin? Well, those people we're married to, our partners. Because chances are our soulmates, well, I guess it depends though, right? Cross-cultural variation that maybe our soulmates would be a family member. Maybe it would not be a family member, right? So not necessarily romantically. Yeah. So I guess it depends on how we want to define it. So I would start with the family first and foremost to say, okay, are our soulmates those people that we're connected to biologically, that we're connected to through marriage Uh, like our in-laws or our Fennelkin, Um, or are they, yes, someone that we have a romantic interest in, a sexual attraction towards, or some other bond? So looking at all those different ways that we construct relationships and then going, okay, how does this idea of a soulmate fit in? Right. Yeah. And I guess you'd also have to then examine um, ideologies around what souls are as well, right? So again, what are those things that connect us to other people? And again, sometimes that blood connection is the most important connection and is more important than any romantic or sexual interest you may have on someone. So
0: Right. Yeah. And I think that's why I wanted to sort of change the focus of my Mm. podcast, because my last podcast was called The One. And so I would interview couples about their love story and how they found each other and how they knew that they had met the one. Mm -hmm. And I just found as I went on, it was so limiting. Because what's the one? Is Mm -hmm. there just one for every person? And how how come that has to be a romantic relationship? And what does that look like? And I just found it really limiting. Mm -hmm. And so I want to sort of broaden it to look at love in sort of all different aspects, because it can be such a wide topic.
2: For sure. And I think...
0: Anthropologists have captured
2: that very well in so many different ways when we look at, again, those ways that we're connected to each other. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, as anthropologists, what we see when we study marriage cross-culturally, that monogamy is not the norm, right? So first and foremost, it's not the norm in primates. We're the exception rather than the rule. Very few primates practice monogamy. Um, and many human societies don't practice monogamy either. So this idea of there just only being one person... Right. Right. And again, it gets into these ideas again, what is the purpose of marriage? Uh, Do you need to have that connection to be married to someone? So you're saying monogamy is a social construct? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a social construct. Um, So, yeah, I guess that then leads into some of those kind of questions then about, well, why do we practice it then at all and what the benefits are? And what are the benefits? Of monogamy? Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. It's funny because usually I don't have to justify monogamy because many of the students I teach, that's what they're used to, right? Right. So usually I spend more time explaining and validating um, polyandry, which is the most rarest form of marriage, right? Mm -hmm. A single uh, woman married to multiple males. Um, polygamy in its various sorts of forms. I have to spend a lot of time breaking down stereotypes around polygamy, what it means mm-hmm. to have a single husband with multiple wives.
0: Oh, and we'll get into all of that oh, as okay. well.
2: Perfect. <laughs> so yeah, so usually um, I have to address that. I think, and it, 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 maybe it does reflect that, again, this is just kind of off the cuff, it reflects this idea of how in our society, monogamy is linked with this idea of romantic link, of this soulmate sort of bond. Mm-hmm. The most important thing that a family has that we value in kind of Western society more broadly is a sense of permanency and enduringness. And I think that for many people, we see monogamy as having that, right? right. The idea that you're not just marrying one person, but you're marrying one person forever. Um so, yeah, so I think it kind of reflects some of those other cultural values that we right. have, those other things that we, we privilege. We definitely um, have a lot of arguments around the value that it has been in terms of things like raising children, constructing households. Um, I tend to argue the argue opposite as a, um, a married woman um, in a heterosexual marriage. So I have a husband. Uh, we have a daughter but both of us work. I often like to joke with my students and only kind of half joke that I would love if we had another adult in our household, because how do we make up for that lack of another adult? Right. Childcare, right? We we ship her, well, we don't ship her off, but (laughs) she goes to the wonderful daycare at McEwen, right? But- It's it's a result of our other choices were being made, right? But if we had another partner within our marriage relationship, right, if we had another adult in our household, um, we wouldn't have to send her off for care. So other societies deal with that in other ways. They say, okay, well, we have monogamous marriages, they result in children, so then we have the elders then live within the households. We have multi-generational households. Right. So again, it's it's all these ideas around these strategies mm-hmm. that we use. And so marriage, so as you can see, I can't really talk about marriage as just um, about that connection that we have with other people, but what the meanings of those connections are. And in anthropology, we would call this a holistic approach, right? Right. right? So the idea mm-hmm. that all of these pieces are interconnected. So it's really hard to talk about um, Love without thinking about well, what purpose does it have in society, and what its other consequences are, and what you might have derived from that as part of it are things like economic consequences, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That we both work, so that has consequences in terms of how our household is constructed right. and the labor that we perform in our household, right? So even though we married for love, it has other ramifications based on the choices we made because we're only married to each other and no one else. Right? And then that can extend to other values that we have as well. So in our society, we actually practice serial monogamy, that we don't expect you to be married to only that one person for your whole life. Right? Um, through whatever means a marriage may end, a relationship may, may end. And depending on the circumstances under which they end, we may have no problem at all with you finding another one. Right. Right. Like you're not over and done, and yeah, you don't get one shot and you're done, right? And I mean, I at the end of the day, yeah, we there's nothing legally in our society that prohibits you from having multiple spouses as long as they're not all at the same time. Right. (laughs) Right. So really, yeah, we don't practice a
0: purely monogamous society either, or or marriage practice either, or Mm -hmm. relationship practice either. And so from what you've said, it's sort of, I'm gathering that a lot of the benefits to monogamy would be stability and security yeah. and um, not even necessarily an emotional connection because you can have that with multiple people mm-hmm. within your lives. Do you think that a lot of it almost stems from a fear base as well? Like in our culture, we're jealous and we're insecure and we're unsure of ourselves. Do you think that that sort of drives us to find that one person to fill that within us?
2: I think so. And I think some of it is because of how we're taught about monogamy. So one of the things that um, I've been talking about with some of my students in some of my courses is around ideas around toxic monogamy as well. These kind of ideas that um, we, we do privilege the idea that there's a lot of security and stability in having this enduring bond with one person. Mm-hmm. And then what while it's meant to kind of prevent us from having those negative feelings that we don't want to have is that it also then creates often those negative feelings, right? The expectation that, well, you're married to me, but now you're looking at someone else. So the only appropriate reaction for me is to be jealous and angry and upset because, no, you're supposed to be focused on me. And I think the majority of people would be like, well, you just looked at them. That's no big deal. But unfortunately, because we're socialized into these processes and these ways of thinking about these structures that exist in our society... um, and relationships are one of these structures, right, that there can be negative consequences as well. So I think the trick that we try to do as anthropologists is is be critical of these systems, but that doesn't mean that we dismiss them outright, mm-hmm. right? But it's rather going, okay, what are the benefits, but also what are some of the consequences of that? So yes, it might provide some stability, but in some forms it can also then provide these other points of anxiety or tension.
0: Right. Right. So almost being in um, a polygamous relationship, it might actually provide more of an emotional stability for a sure. monogamous relationship. Yeah,
2: because uh, what we see in, in other cultures that practice polygamy as a, a standard marriage practice is that the most successful ones seem to be those, and I mean success in terms of all the kind of metrics of success, tend to be ones where there's a very rigid kind of hierarchy and co-wife system, right? So where everyone kind of knows their place within the family and knows what their access to their spouse is going to be, right? right, Cause they're still only married to one other person. They're not married to all the other wives, but they're sharing that single partner. So knowing what their status is, knowing what their duties and responsibilities are going to be within the household. Many societies practice what's called sororal polygamy, where you're marrying a number of sisters, like people who are biologically connected, because that can also prevent some of the kind of negative stereotypes mm-hmm. of infighting and whatnot, because the idea is that, As I was kind of mentioning before, instead of me and my husband shipping our child off to daycare, my sister would be helping me and I would be helping her and we would be co-raising our children together. Right. Right. And so that can actually create a very strong bond between the women, the co-wives, because they might have that biological connection of being sisters, or sometimes it can be um, cousins, right, Um, allows them to have that support network there. Right. Because again, the the importance then is kind of the co-parenting versus that kind of romantic relationship you would have with your, you know, your opposite sex spouse. Right.
0: And you had mentioned that you know, the rarest form of polygamy is polyandry. Correct. Mm-hmm. Why do you suppose that that's so rare and what would be the benefits of that opposed to sort of one man with many wives?
2: Yeah. So that's the question we always get, right, is why is it is it so rare? It's that historically there does not tend to be kind of um, a surplus of males, Um kind of if we look at humans as a single population. So that's one of the factors that tends to result. Um, Another seems to be the other pressures that tend to result in polyandry. So there's very few societies. Tibet's probably the best known example that there are parts of Tibet where uh, polyandry was practiced, but in this case, it's fraternal polyandry. So a single woman will marry brothers and you go, okay, well, what would be the benefit for that? Well, Tibet is a very land-starved country. They don't have um, a lot of land resources, in particular arable land for agriculture or pastoralism for animals. So in order to understand why that's a critical factor, you have to understand how land is inherited. So when a father dies, the t- or a husband dies, the sons inherit the land. So if you have two or three or four sons, you've now divided the land into small, smaller parcels. If they have sons, it gets divided smaller and smaller and smaller, right? Well, if you have two brothers marry a single wife, right, she produces offspring, that offspring will share that land, right? You're not dividing those resources. Right. Plus, it also is a population control mechanism, mm-hmm. right? So we tend to see polygamous societies tend to be, be those that having a lot of children means you have a lot of labor, a lot of hands to support, the kind of work that's being done either in the household, in the fields, right? Kind of subsistence-based practices that help that family survive. So having a lot of wives means you can have a lot of children, right? Because you're not waiting for one pregnancy to be done, to have the nursing weaning period and go into the next. So in Tibet, it's the opposite case where you're really spacing out those birth intervals. And so it becomes a really effective mechanism for population control. Mm. So again, this is where we have to look at its when we look at marriage, it's it's never I shouldn't say it's never, but it's it's rarely just about that connection with the person. It's more about what does that connection mean in terms of all these other processes that structure and
0: form our societies. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of it is almost thinking more logically than thinking romantically.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I'd say logically and strategically, um, what is the has the most? And I mean, we can think biologically. What has the best adaptive benefit? Right. What is going to ensure that you can survive? Um, that you can persist, that you can potentially have children, and that they will be successful as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Okay, so we've touched on monogamy,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, polygamy, polyandry. Mm-hmm. Which do you think is the ideal situation? Oh, <laughs> the trick question. <laughs> I'm going to be an anthropologist. The
2: ideal situation is the one that operates best, has the most logic and coherence for the society that yeah, is practicing you're good. it. <laughs> I, I don't think there's an ideal, and that's the thing, and I think that's what I try to get across to my students the most, is that, again, we are, we're taught that there is a preferred form. Mm-hmm. We're taught that, oh, you're only going to marry one person, you're only going to, you know, um, have a happily ever after with the one, or we're taught other lessons, and I, I think what I always try to stress to my students is, um, it's okay to have what makes sense for you, and it's okay to accept what your cultural norm is. Um but then be cautious when you're being critical then of other cultural practices, right? Acknowledge that if it's being practiced, there must be some sort of internal form of logic that exists, and it must have some relevance to those people. So to dismiss it outright because it's not what you believe in is problematic. And I, and I mean, then we can apply that to sexuality as well, right? That just because um, this idea of the one works for you uh, and someone else is polyamorous, right, don't be dismissive of that identity of that um, feeling of that sexuality, of that romantic interest, because it's valid as well.
0: So what do you think about that, babe? As someone with who's more prone to logic than romanticism, which you are. That's does, me, yeah. Does what Katie says make sense? Could you ever see yourself in a relationship with more than one person?
1: Uh, short answer, no. No? Uh, no, I, and I'm for one specific reason... And that reason is jealousy. I think jealousy is a really strong thing. And I think in your mind you can you can have it set in your mind that this isn't gonna bother me, this is totally logical, this is this is just a, a situation that makes sense for us. But when it comes down to it, isn't isn't there always gonna be that little thing in the back of your mind saying, Oh, they like spending more time with this person than me, and oh, this person does this that so and so likes better, and I think it would always be constant questioning and, and, um, a struggle to get your own time and worrying that anytime you don't have as much time with that person, you're going to be, you're going to be worried that they like the other person more. I don't know. I just, the whole jealousy thing, I think I don't see how it wouldn't rear its ugly head.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, when we've grown up in a culture that favors monogamy and says that it's one person for every one person. That I mean, that's our prevalent belief, but I like how Katie brought up that it's polyamory works well when there's rigid rules so that that expectation of, well, they like me better. They like the other person better. It's sort of wiped out by these are the rules. Uh, on Tuesdays, we go out on a date on Thursdays, they go on a date with the other partner. So that sort of helps mitigate some of that jealousy, but I totally get what you're saying. Um, I think for me, the jealousy and sort of insecurity, which we're taught in our culture, you know, that's sort of always prevalent that we're not good enough. I think that that would seep into a lot of relationships. I think in our society, it would be really hard to maintain.
1: Well, and also I think watching someone else have that level of intimacy with a second person, um, would be really tough to deal with. I think, I mean, it's easy to say it wouldn't be, but in practice, because I don't think you can really... I don't think you can have that level of intimacy with two people at once. I think it's really difficult, too. Anyways, and I, and I will say there's probably a small portion of people who for whom that really works. But human nature, I think, is
0: ah, human nature is different across cultures, though.
1: Like what okay. we're taught
0: as human nature is completely different in another culture that is brought up that this is the norm.
1: I I can really only speak for me, but I can't imagine how that wouldn't end badly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, it, you know, logically if we're vulcans, that's fine, but um <laughs> I think I think people's feelings will always win out in the end. I would love to listen to people talk who actually do that and see how does that work. And because it, I just I can't fathom it.
0: Totally. And if there's people out there listening and they want to come on and talk to us about it, I would love to hear. I would love to hear from a polyamorous partnership that is making this work because it's something that, you know, I agree. It's hard to sort of wrap my mind around because I've been brewed in this culture that says one for one. So um, I would love to hear another perspective outside of our heterosexual monogamous relationship, mm-hmm. married, legally married. I would love to hear other viewpoints. So reach out to us if, if, that, if that is something that you practice.
1: Okay, so let me ask you this then. Okay. I'll put you on the spot. Do you think that someone who finds the lifestyle works very well for them, would, would it be possibly a product of maybe they've had poor relationships in the past where their expectation of a one-on-one relationship isn't quite what it is for someone who's maybe had a long-term successful relationship?
0: I don't think so. I think, I don't think that it's necessarily a product of sort of a negative past, I mean, if you look at you and I, there are lots of things that we do for each other that work really well. There are some things between us that maybe don't work as well as others. And so if we had, say, a third, not that I'm advocating for this in our relationship. (laughs) You don't
1: have a list written down there, do you?
0: (laughs) If we had a third in our relationship that filled those needs for me, and I'm not even talking sexual needs, but like an emotional supportive, nurturing need, because I love you very much. You're not the best at nurturing. That's something that I have to get from a lot of my female friends. So if we had a third in our relationship that filled that need in me, that was different, something that you could not possibly fill. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I don't think that has to do with negative past. I think that has to do with, you know, filling an emotional need that is important to me in our relationship. I don't want to lose what I get from you, but it might be something that I could get from someone else to complement our relationship as it is.
1: Yeah. No, I, I get that. I just, I, I think for me, yeah, there's a lot there. <laughs>
0: there there's a lot to unpack. I,
1: <laughs> I, I keep coming back to the same thing. I'm like, you know, if, if the other part of your life that doesn't include your first partner, you know, if you start focusing more time on that part and less time on the first partner, then... How quickly does that jealousy come into it? I just, I just, I will keep coming back to that same point.
0: So a lot of times when people talk about sort of their, their perfect partner, they always say, oh, I'll take this from this person and that from this person and this from that person and mix them all together. And I'll have my perfect singular partner. Well, why can't you just date this person and that person and the other person? And then you have all that perfection plus probably something you didn't even realize. Well, I
1: mean, sure, that's one way to look at it, but I'm going to give you another way to look at that. Uh, You also have three shitty parts of three different people that you also get stuck with because you can't. I don't know. Like, I like the idea of being able to segment, you know, just like you and I are going to have this thing together, and then you and somebody else are going to have something else together. That's interesting, and I like the idea of it, but realistically, you're going to get some of the crap too.
0: Well, of course. And that's what relationships are. Yeah. They're not all strawberries and ice cream. Mm, I wish it was. (laughs) That would be really good with a little bit of chocolate sauce.
1: See? You always have to have a third.
0: I was just going to say three perfect things together. Strawberry and ice cream were (laughs) fine on their own. But isn't it better with chocolate sauce? Yeah. Point made. Point made. We're moving on now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's move on. So we're gonna start doing a new segment in the podcast, uh, where we give love advice to people. And we'll call it, I don't know, love lessons with Medusa Hound.
1: I uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. That Bacon? has no ring to it whatsoever.
0: Bacon Beth?
1: Bacon, Bacon beth. Better. <laughs> <laughs> Better. Um submit. Segments name suggestions to <laughs> Robin <laughs> yeah. at yeah.
0: com. We need to work on that, yeah. apparently. Anyway, despite the title, whatever it ends up being, probably not Love Lessons with Bacon Beth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> send us your questions. If you have any queries or curiosities about love in general, or you need some advice on your love life or your lack thereof, even if it's a familial type of question, anything to do with love, I can't guarantee your answer that you'll get from us will be good, but it'll, it'll be an answer.
1: No, I guarantee it will be good. Oh. I don't guarantee it will be accurate, <laughs> but it will be good.
0: And that's it for today. So thanks for listening to this episode of Love Uncovered. There are a few ways you can reach out to us. I'm on Twitter at Medusa Beth. Phil is at BaconHound. And the podcast Twitter is Love underscore Uncovered. Now, if you're interested in reaching out to Katie on Twitter, her Twitter account is at kbittner. That's K-B-I-I-T-T-N-E-R. And she likes to talk about dogs and cats and bats. Strangely enough, she posts some videos of bats eating bananas, which is bananas. Also, please take a moment to subscribe to Love Uncovered wherever you get your podcasts and leave a kind review because that helps others to find us. Thanks to Our Good Wolf for supplying the music for Love Uncovered. You can hear more from them at ourgoodwolf.bandcamp.com or check them out on Spotify. that's part of who you are and i love you for your whole your metaphorical entirety thank you for the (laughs) clarification oh this is veering off into weird territory
2: yeah this is a weird (laughs) fetish podcast now